were you kind of just like shit? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I I think for me it was like what what you know what do I do? You know how do I what am I going to do? This is William. William Furman. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. William is an architect by practice who spent the first half of his career working as an architect in New York City. When it looked like William had everything all figured out, it was one night ten years ago that threw his personal and professional life into a tailspin. I was 27 at the time, so 29 actually. <laughs> get my age wrong all the time. I was out to dinner with some friends in New York City, where I'm from. We were, you know, just having a discussion. I started to feel a bit of dizziness. The dizziness kind of led me kind of into a, a kind of world of vertigo. Spent some time feeling quite ill uh, until my, my friends actually decided that it was time to take me to the hospital. And so I went to the hospital. It took them quite a long time to figure out what was going on with me. They thought I had um, multiple sclerosis, which is a very kind of typical thing to, to have as a 29-year-old when a certain part of your brain is affected. But they kind of ran a series of tests on me, pretty much every test in the, in the book that you could possibly imagine. And they determined that I had a stroke. After about five days in the hospital... In a way, the stroke was kind of a, for them, it was like a, they were happy to find out that it was a stroke because it wasn't multiple sclerosis. But remaining effects on me were really directly in relationship to my vision. So my left eye became paralyzed. My brain had to process images basically from two different directions and put those images together to produce a kind of new reality. What was that like, looking through really like a new set of eyes? I, at first, was, you know, frightened, and doctors told me that, you know, this is something that I could live with forever or could resolve itself over a certain period of time. Because I'm young, the brain has the possibility for, to be regenerated. The disease is called internuclear ophthalmalgia, um, which I love to say because it's so difficult. <laughs> and I'll say it again, intranuclear ophthalmalgia. Rolls off the tongue now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, INO in simple terms. Um, and basically what that means is that your the muscles of your brain are impacted, the muscles that control the coordination of your two eyes. Basically, if you imagine your one eye looking to the left and one eye looking forward, the brain has to kind of take that information and splice it together, right? And so, you know, if a subway car is moving on your left, but the platform is right in front of you, you're seeing a subway car move on the platform, right? And so that becomes this kind of mixing of imagery, you know, that the brain is trying to process. William then took time off work to both recover and step back from his craft. Because architecture is a practice that relies so heavily on vision, William was worried that this could potentially stifle or even end his career. But that's not what happened next. A lot of the doctors that I had to meet with, you know, I had to deal with, you know, psychiatrics. I had to deal with, I had to learn how to walk again because my balance was completely off. So I was walking with a cane, even though I wasn't paralyzed in my legs because my equilibrium was off because of my vision. It just impacted my movement through the city, through space, through my own apartment, you know. And But tying it to my background allowed me to... They allowed it to be kind of therapeutic in a sense that I could begin to understand it and start to 
gain new knowledge from it. And what ended up coming from it is that partial blindness could actually lead to like more awareness. And for me, that was something that I had never thought about before. But the sense that, you know, suddenly I was much more aware of the space that I was in, the city, the, you know, I was living in New York at the time, which is not necessarily an easy city to have one eye in, mm-hmm. um, no depth perception, you know, things like that. So it became quite a, you know, an experience in terms of kind of recalibrating my, my life. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today we are rethinking the built environment. The cities, the buildings, the infrastructure around us. But we'll be taking a little bit of a different angle. Today I want to look at what the built environment says about us and how we are using architectural design to cater for the growing and changing needs of the population. In essence, what is the social sustainability of the built environment today? What are we doing well? And what should we be doing differently? But first, back to William. Following his stroke and developing INO, William's approach to his practice was flipped on its head. Because he was experiencing spaces and shapes in a new way, how he understood these spaces and why they were important took on a whole new meaning. Because I'm an architect um, and I have the ability to to draw space specifically, I became fascinated with the spaces that I was experiencing. Um, so standing on a subway platform, you know, where the tracks and the platform actually begin to merge together into a single image, or walking down the street where, you know, the street begins to converge on itself. Just simple things like clasping your hands together and seeing, like, a third hand appear, you know, uh, and trying to understand, like, like the mechanics between the mind, the body, and the environment, I think became really interesting to me. During this time, William also worked with clinicians to illustrate to them his new experience of space. And so I kind of created these kind of comparative drawings that showed the real space versus the space that I was experiencing and became kind of a therapeutic exercise in the sense that, one, I was able to show my family and friends what I was seeing, but two doctors that had never really been able to explain um, the kind of visual results or the kind of perceptual results, specifically internuclear ophthalmalgia, um, were really kind of keen to show that information and share that information to other doctors. And then I started to think about, you know, well, people are blind, people are deaf, people, you know, can't walk, people, you know, people experience space very differently. And by understanding it through my own disability, you know, it kind of opened up these kind of new opportunities that architecture has the ability to kind of engage with notions of visual perception and to make us more aware of the space that we're in. One of the people who were involved in my study for my PhD had had a spinal injury. So was an, an adult, a tall man, so it was quite heavy. This is Philippa Kanamola. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at UTS. In Philippa's PhD, she was looking at home modification particularly for those living with a disability or someone who needed a high level of care. 
It was very, very difficult for him to get to the bathroom. He lived in a terrace house, very difficult to get to the bathroom. He was exhausted by the time that he'd kind of looked after himself. His wife wasn't able to carry him up the stairs. He hadn't realised how much home modifications were actually going to change his life. In her work, Philippa focuses on the relationship, or as she says, tension between human rights and the built environment, and how these important built spaces, like the home, can help lead to a sense of community. He said to me, Philippa, if I had known how much this would have meant, I would have pushed for these changes earlier, because the bathroom was on the same level, but it was further away from his bedroom. And so he was able to get government-subsidised, we applied for government-subsidised home modifications so that the bathroom was attached to his bedroom on the ground level. And he said to me, the outcomes of that small change, that redesigning of the downstairs of their house, has totally taken the pressure off his wife and his daughters to help him get around the house and to look after himself in the morning. But not only that... He went from never having gone to the movies since his accident, which had been, I think, three years prior, to being able to having the energy and the state of mind to want to go out. So he'd go to the movies. And he said for the first time in years, he, he and his wife have been able to experience those social events. And that's because of a change at home. So it's quite interesting how a change in the home can affect a change outside the home. Philippa's recent research is moving away from the individual home and looking at group homes, in particular for people who require a high level of 24-hour care, such as those with an intellectual disability. When it comes to how these built environments have changed and what improvements can still be made, Philippa says a lot of this comes down to new technology. In my PhD work, I looked specifically at changes to the bathroom, including ramps, including handrails, so very much physical changes to the built environment. As well as those physical changes, what are the digital, what's the digital space in the built environment and how can that impact how people live and how people engage with space and how people are able to receive care or be more independent because they, kind of have, they work kind of interdependently, I think. And what are some of those digital aspects? For people receiving very high levels of care might be the way that service is provided. So looking at care people or support people that are actually mobilised with devices so that we can know who's providing care at any point in time. Someone might know that you haven't opened the fridge in three days, for example, and that's out of character. Or it might be knowing that someone at three o'clock in the morning has gone into the bathroom and a support person being aware, not actually in the, having to be in the bathroom with them, but knowing that they're in there and that if they, there might be sensitive pads on the floor that know if they fall... What about someone who, for example, might be living with early onset dementia? They're living totally independently in the sense they haven't got anyone living with them, but they're starting to experience some of the symptoms that we might expect. There's a lot of apps on phones that can help remind them on different stages of daily tasks so that they might, if they're having trouble remembering that type of data monitoring where we know if someone hasn't opened the fridge or if they've been in the bathroom too long. It's all around that same tension of looking at design built environment and human rights how can we enable people to make the choices they want to do to live the way they want to live and the way that we expect to live in full health not only is the technology that lives in and alongside the built environment changing but so is the tech that we use to make it
the history of architecture is intrinsically linked to the development of technology and materials. This is Tim Shork. Tim is an associate professor in the Faculty of Design, Architecture and Building at the University of Technology, Sydney. Tim's work looks at robotic and digital fabrication in architecture, meaning using tech to both design and construct the world around us. Are they like kind of what you might imagine a robot to look like, like a big arm that's moving things around and building something? Yeah, so I mean, they're um, different kinds of robots and the ones that are quite commonly used. Yeah, they are like an arm. But, you know, there's, of course, also, you know, other robots. But the ones that we mostly use in architecture and construction are they come on wheels, multiple robots collaborating with each other and a human. So, yeah. I was keen to pick Tim's brain about what he thought of the modern built environment as the technology he works with could potentially be the same tech that might be used to modify someone's home, like we heard from Philippa. It's also the technology that could change everything we know about the built environment today. When it comes to robotics in this environment, how can there be like a good interplay between us utilising these new robotics to construct the built environment around us, but maintaining this sense of being human well, I mean, one, one way to think about it is if you would think about the um, timber construction. So within timber construction, you know, there's a lot of machines that are being used when, you know, it comes to cutting the tree, going into the mill. But when it then comes to actually building a building, there's a lot of real information breakdown where robotics and, you know, and digital technologies can assist us in, in particular with the social aspect, is that we can train, you know, the tradesmen of the future to learn how to employ this, as it happens within other industries before, you know, a, a carpenter now should not just know how to use a nail gun, but maybe also how to engage with a robot, because in the end, they will have to work in tandem with these technologies. Within, um, you know, cabinet makers, they used to cut every piece of material by hand, but now, of course, it was in technology, CNC routers to cut things out. So in the end, there will always need to be a human that will need to program the robot. Um, it is just that it will extend you know, the, the skill sets um, and require people to upskill with that. Do you find the notion of sustainability influencing your work at all these days? It's certainly a component. It's not the central driver, but it's you know, many of the design drivers um, and also drivers of the research that we do. Most people understand it. It just has to do something with, you know, being green, maybe using, you know, less material. But from um, our perspective, it really is also about there's a real cultural aspect to sustainability and how can we train, you know, workers of the future um, in order to be able to use that, be able to have a sustainable job security, for example. For that, if you think about the construction sector, it's a very large industry, and you know, the take up of digital technology is very, very small compared to other industry sectors. So, you know, sustainability extends for us beyond the material. Where Tim's work is geared towards the future of architectural design, architect William Furman's work finds its footing more so in the present. Seeing the world through a new set of eyes after experiencing his stroke and being diagnosed with INO, William began to reevaluate the built environment that we are currently nestled amongst, looking at not necessarily more technologically advanced constructions, but changing current ones to draw us in, making them attractive to us when they weren't necessarily attractive before. 
It was um, a project in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, in the United States, and it was a project for um, the River City Council and the American Institute of Architects. And basically what they did is they put a call out. It was an comp- international competition to design five installations in a series of alleyways in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And this is middle America, Trump country. Um, this is, you know, people don't walk. People only drive, you know, people, um, you know, are will, will not go in alleyways, you know, because they're worried that they might get mugged or something else might happen. And so the idea of the, these kind of installations was to say, well, what if we kind of change the kind of movements or patterns through the city by implementing a series of kind of architectural projects. Um, And we designed this 14-meter long chandelier um, (laughs) that kind of floats above an alleyway and kind of brings this kind of opulence to, you know, what is typically a kind of undesirable space in the city. So basically, we designed a canopy system um, that had 999 carbon fiber rods, which are basically used for kites. Um, For kites? Yeah. The um, thing that kind of lines the kite. Exactly. It's the structure of a kite. Yeah. Um, And so we had 999 of those cut to different lengths. Um, And then attached to that, we had these mirrored styrene uh, triangles, plastic triangles that are attached. And so each one of those 999 rods are then hung from a suspension system up above, um, which is connected by the two buildings on either side of the alleyway. And so what happens is, is that you get a couple of different conditions that begin to occur. You get natural light, which begins to, you know, hit the surface of these triangles, and the light begins to kind of travel around the space because it reflects off of the mirror. It can be just an installation that you look at. It could they could have, you know, events underneath it. You know, if you project imagery into it, the colors will, you know, bounce off all of the different surfaces, almost like a disco ball. <laughs> um, what's been really fascinating about it is the way that it's changed the patterns of movement through the city, that it's brought about five thousand more pedestrians into the city in a city that, you know, people don't walk in. Um, and so it's suddenly kind of bringing people in a way that, you know, is, to me, generating very positive results. Because even with that bringing people in, it would be foot traffic as opposed to actual traffic itself. Exactly. It's, I mean, it's a kind of a funny thing. You know, I, I, I see it as a back and forth process. I don't think we're going to change the world. Um, And that's not really my goal. I think it's much more about creating more opportunities, you know, and allowing for these types of kind of places and spaces to exist, really. Because I think that, again, just just by kind of impacting someone in that way, it allows them to kind of engage with something that they wouldn't typically engage with. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. We're also available on iTunes. For more info, also head to our website, toser.com. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.